Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noel Castler podcast. Broke out the dulcimer today. Was feeling in the mood for it. Crazy times, heavy times. It's supposed to be played sitting down, but uh, <laughs> that's podcast style dulcimer. Anyway, hope you guys are good. I know it's been a minute since I've done one of these. I've been writing, I've been putting stuff out there, but I uh, haven't sat down to talk to you guys in a minute, so let's do it. Heavy times. You know, I woke up today and was in complete shock like the rest of the world to hear what's happening in Israel. I got a lot of friends who live over there. I got a lot of friends here, you know, that have a lot of relatives over there. I, I know people have, have worked on behalf of the Israeli government. I, you know, it, it's such a tragic situation, and I don't even know if everybody is prepared for, for what, you know, the next few weeks and months are going to bring. You know, the, the suffering and, and the tragedy of this stuff is just immense, you know, and a terrorist attack like that, because that's what it is, it's just, uh, you know, it's beyond the pale. And it comes at a time where it just feels like the world is being overwhelmed in every way, even environmentally, right? That's part of the reason I haven't done a podcast in a while. It's like, I don't want to just get on here and rant. I know that's basically what it is, <laughs> but I'm not looking to to bum anybody out, and, uh, you know, it's been pretty crazy, right? You know, just from an environmental standpoint, we'll obviously get into the geopolitical stuff, though I'm no expert, and, you know, nobody is at this point, right? Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody knows why the intelligence failed so much on the Israeli side to not know that this is coming, but, you know, it happens, right? We've been here before. You know, superpowers can get snuck up on and uh even countries with you know incredible intelligence and technology and stuff like the israelis have you know terror is terror if somebody wants to hurt you they can in this modern world you know and and violence is never a solution obviously you have to respond you know in a military way now but it, you know it just breaks my heart it's like curse what's the curse of the house of atreus you know Violence begets violence, and we're we're in such an unstable time already. First of all, I'm glad Joe Biden is president at this moment. Can we just get this out of the way right now? Like, thank God this didn't happen, you know, while while Trump was in office. And it also points to the time wasted when he was in office that I bring up often. You know, the, the fact that we lost so much time in terms of human progress, intellectual progress as a nation, in terms of research and all this stuff, and they're still at it, right? They're trying to shut down the government every chance they get, right? We're without a speaker right now, second in line to the president at a time of global instability, thanks to the GOP chaos, right? But when, you know, Trump controlled the White House in both houses of Congress, he wasn't trying to really bring about peace in the Mideast. He was trying to score political points. He was letting Jared and Steven Mnuchin make as much money as they could off the situation. That's what the Abraham Accords were about. That's what the last-minute trips that Jared and, you know, Secretary Treasury Mnuchin took in the, you know, in the wanting days of their in, in, in administration, right? <laughs> like, when January 6th was happening... Jared was flying back from the Middle East, taking a shower and turning on the TV to see the horror that the rest of the world 
was facing, and of course now he's nowhere to be found. He's spending the billions that he got from, from Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, the world's a mess, and Netanyahu's obviously a crook, and uh, it, it complicates this situation so much. But no matter how you feel about the politics of, of Israel, the people don't deserve this, you know, and the children living in Palestine don't deserve the war that their parents are bringing upon them. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just heartbreaking, and it's going to be a heavy, um, a heavy time for the world, I fear. And uh, so that's part of the reason I just wanted to check in and do this podcast. It's a rainy day here. It, it, we got some torrential floods last weekend in the New York area, and we're getting a little reboot of that this Saturday. I'm recording this. But um, that's part of what we're facing, too. You know, it's catastrophe. And, and we can't even deal with climate change in the proper way because there's so much political chaos and there's so much compromise in terms of, like, you know, don't go after Biden for this stuff because we got to get him back in office, which is which is very true. Right. You know, Biden can't just be like, I'm going to outlaw fossil fuels tomorrow, which is what I would do if I was president, by the way. <laughs> so don't vote for me if you want to drive or use your lawnmower, because that shit is gone <laughs> the moment I walk into the Oval Office. But, uh, you know, and I'm serious about that, but because that's what's going to stop this. And, and nobody wants to really talk about that. Everyone's like, yeah, climate change sucks. But, you know, I forgot that quart of milk. I got to run back to the grocery store and I got to do it in my pickup truck. Uh, not everybody's like that. But, you know, I don't see a lot of people trying to change their ways. <clears throat> not that's not to say that people don't care, but, it, it, you know, in response to the enormity of the problem, we're sort of just kind of going going about like life is normal. And, and I'm including myself in that. And I certainly, I, I think about it all day long. You know, but I still got lights on. I'm still doing a podcast right now. I'm using energy, you know. I, I'm, But I'm trying to not use as many plastic products and single-use plastics and all these things that are byproducts of the oil and gas industry, like these wars, right? You know, there, there's no geopolitical conflict in our world that doesn't involve economics and, and that doesn't involve the petrochemical oil and gas industry. And obviously the Mideast, you know, is a great example of that. Israel is sort of something different, right? But the, the money that was there that, that allowed Trump to sort of waste diplomatic time because he knew he could send Jared over there on the DL and cut some deals with the Saudis who they're dying to get that Saudi money they, they were before he became president. All that stuff feeds into the instability, right? We saw that during the, the Gulf War, the last one and the first one, right? You know, and no peace has come, right? And, and I think that's the horror. When I woke up this morning and saw the news, you know, and this is sort of a constant theme in a lot of what I talk about and write about, but I was like, there's not going to be any peace in my lifetime, right? I'm 52. It's kind of like, you know, hopefully I'll be here for another, you know, 40, 50 years. But it's like, yeah, th this mess isn't going to get straightened out in my lifetime. And I don't just mean what, what got started today. I mean the whole of it, you know. Putin, Eastern Europe, you know, Ukraine, the Republican Party. It's going to take generations to wash this chaos out of us. And it's going to go beyond politics. It's going to go beyond the left and right. Because it's, you know, we're at the level of like, 
Dr. King and Gandhi and stuff. You, you need people to, you know, Stephen Biko. You, you need people like to almost rise up in, in a spiritual way against this, this illness, you know, this ego-based mind, mind-made madness, if you will, of, of men seeking power, right? Because it's all about power and corruption. When you look at the motives on the right, when you look at the chaos that just went down on Capitol Hill, you know, they fired McCarthy because he wasn't going to shut down the government because Trump told him to shut down the government, right? Trump summoned Marjorie Taylor Greene up to Bedminster and they ate halibut and drank Diet Coke <laughs> and Maggie Haberman sat in the corner with her pencil and wrote it all down. And this is what's in the New York Times, you know, and, and Trump said, you got to shut it down. It's going to help my case. You know, it's going to help the special counsel or, or hamstring that the special counsel. So he thought it wouldn't have mattered at all, but he thought it would help his case. So he ordered this little troll that nobody had ever heard of before a few years ago. You know, she was living under a bridge in Georgia somewhere. And, you know, QAnon made her the candidate, chased out her opposition, and she ran unopposed and took her seat and became a celebrity in the Republican Party and beyond, right? Because every time I log on to Twitter, I see somebody retweeting Marjorie Taylor Greene and people became stars by subtweeting her. You know, that means getting in everyone's replies so other people see you serving it back to them and you get a follow that way. It's kind of one of the little tricks people use to build up followings online, which is annoying. I, I used to do it to Trump. I stopped doing it when he left. But, you know, that's what people do. A lot of the people you see fighting back are hoping to build up a big following that they can then make money off of which is a whole nother issue which disgusts me and it's part of the reason i haven't been putting out as much content because this isn't about the money this isn't monetized there's no sponsors of this podcast there's no patron you know there's no send me some money you can sign up for the Substack. you'll get all the content free you can support it for 12 bucks a month if you want to do that it helps me do the podcast and everything else and i appreciate it but my end goal is not building a brand for Noel Kassler, okay? And when I see so much information out there, I'm like, I don't need to put more noise out there, more content, because what happens is people keep, you know, they make a buck off it, and there's this insatiable appetite for more and more and more. That's why you see on MSNBC, all they talk about now is Trump's legal trials, because they know it's a recipe for two years you know, it's real cheap to get a Zoom call with a former prosecutor and a lawyer and have somebody come in and a socialite who's now a journalist can sit across from you and give you her opinions on Trump. And I saw an ad for a Stop Trump rally downtown and Mary Trump's on it and Michael Cohn, who still lives in Trump Park Avenue. You know, it's like, where were these people in 2016? They weren't anywhere to be found. You know, I'm no hero, but I walked away from my career because nobody else would break their NDAs who worked on Celebrity Apprentice because they wanted to make a buck. And I saw people make a buck off of speaking out, you know, and now they're sort of, now they got podcasts, people that were afraid to speak out against their own relative or their own boss seven years ago. Now have podcasts and lead panel discussions and get paid and there's celebrities in the anti-Trump movement. And I find it annoying as hell because it's part of the big greedy attention economy grift that gave you Trump in the first place, you know, and it's everywhere and it's going to lead us to ruin if we don't get hip to it. 
And again, it's part of the reason I haven't done a podcast because I know most of you guys probably like all those people and I'm not dissing them. People got to make a living and they get a little taste of celebrity and they want more, you know, so everybody's got a podcast and a Substack, but not everybody's saying the truth. You know, people are all repeating the same kind of stuff they heard somebody else say. And it's this, you know, it's this economy based on clicks and rage farming and anger and it's not healthy for anybody you know and trump knows that better than anybody else that's why he's always played the media like a fiddle right because he knows people are greedy he knew nbc knew he wasn't a billionaire you know when they started shooting the apprentice before the one i worked on which is when the celebrities came in the the just the regular apprentice which was the first contract they gave him for a tv show which Mark Burnett, by the way, wanted to do one on the Mir space station with Russian oligarchs and Putin, and they put him on to Trump, and that's how he ended up doing one on a billionaire here in New York. But uh, when, when they first went to film that, my buddy was the audio guy, and when they walked into the office, all the like furniture was threadbare and stuff. Like He didn't look like a billionaire, and they had to go rent furniture to make it look fancy, so like the boardroom and all that stuff was all rented. You know, or by the time I worked on the show, it was on a soundstage for the finale. You know, we, we taped the first finale at 8H at SNL studio. So the whole thing was a creation of TV, just like all reality show is. And, you know, it's kind of with a wink and a nod. Everybody knows it's fake. And, you know, in even Mark Burnett's defense, nobody knew the guy was going to become president. That would have been the farthest thing from the truth, right? But he knew nobody was going to look that hard at the fact that he wasn't a billionaire and he would give out free hotel rooms to NBC execs during, uh, you know, like during the sort of upfronts. Do you know what upfronts are when a network sells its, you know, sells its programming to advertisers and it's a kind of behind the scenes thing, but it's big business so i used to work on those for all the networks every year because they'd make all the celebrities come in you know and kiss ass to to like corporate types <laughs> and they were always a nightmare and i did the fox ones which were completely insane but anyway uh and tbs you know i would do t and turner networks tnt you know which was cnn it's a tv show right it's entertainment which is my point right and, and so is the online stuff you know it's cool if you're consuming that and it makes you feel better and it keeps you up to date. I'm not trying to be judgmental about that. Well, what I'm trying, well, I guess I am a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, it pisses me off. If you had power to do something about it at some point and you waited until you could make a buck off it, you're no hero or friend to democracy. That's just the way it goes. You know, I'm doing this for the people who don't have a voice, you know, for the the women and children that are being demonized in this country right now for the simple fact of trying to come across the border and get a better life. You know, I've never met a Latin person I didn't like. Never. I've never met one that wasn't hardworking. Every person I've ever interacted with who came from another country made it better in my eyes. And that's not to say there aren't bad apples. There's bad people in, you know, everywhere, right? It's human nature. But the people that are coming here to work with their families deserve every opportunity to do that. And they deserve our sympathy and our help, not our pity, but our help. You know, we need what they have to offer, as I've said a million times on this show. So the people protesting that, as they were in Staten Island this week, 
You know, they were showing up outside of a shelter, the Trump supporters and the MAGA guys, and they were blaring horns and blasting music and bright lights into this. It was like an elementary school or former elementary school or something, somewhere where they were housing these families, you know, where mothers were hopefully trying to get a night's sleep, you know, with their kids, their traumatized kids who's been, who've been traveling thousands of miles, you know across several countries and God knows what kind of horror to come here and hopefully get a, you know, a, a, a shot at working and getting a few decent meals and a place to live, you know, and a chance for their kids to go to school. And they got to hear that. They got to hear some mook, you know, from Staten Island, whose own family's probably only been here two or three generations, you know, harass them, completely ignorant of how they, their ancestors got harassed when they came off the boat to get here at Ellis Island, you know, two miles across the water from Staten Island. Like, it's insane. The irony is insane, but that, that ignorance has been weaponized, right, by this huge machine, you know, that, that they've created on the right that feeds people poison. You know, when, when, when the Republican Party descended into chaos this week and, and they kicked out Speaker McCarthy... Fox News wasn't covering that. I switched on Fox News out of curiosity, and they were talking about pirates in San Francisco. Pirates, right? <laughs> and they, it was basically like meth heads that were stealing outboard motors off of dinghies that were attached to yachts, you know, so they could sell them for parts. You know, desperate drug addicts, and it's problem, and it's crime. But the, the Chiron was basically like, what's safer, you know, San Francisco or the Somali coast? You know, completely xenophobic, completely racist, complete, like, ignorance and fear and horror, but that's what's being fed into the minds of, of the people that consume that product, you know? And a lot of those people are older Americans, as I wrote about on my Substack. You know, what's going to happen to this older population that's been all ginned up on fear from Fox News for decades, and now they're armed to the teeth, sitting behind their, you know, locked doors as dementia sets in? You know, we saw earlier this year this 15-year-old boy knocked on the door because he was lost trying to pick up his little brother and he got shot in the head by some freaking deranged lunatic who watched Fox News all day and had too many guns, right? You weaponize these people with the poison, you know? And, and there's a lot of money in it, right? If it wasn't profitable, they wouldn't be doing it. Rupert Murdoch is doing it because he makes money. His kids are carrying on his tradition because he makes money, right? Because he's stepping down. The Republican Party, they're in it because there's money in it. Donald Trump is in it because there was money and he wants to stay out of jail because now he realizes he went too far and he's going to lose all his money. So he's nervous, <laughs> right? So he's got to get become president again to stay out of jail. And he becomes president again. I don't know if you followed this, you know, I, I've written about it on Substack. I got another piece that's coming out on it soon. But Project 2025, if you haven't heard of it, is the Heritage Foundation's basically battle plan for if Trump gets reelected, they're going to apply the Unitarian theory. And the Unitarian theory is a conservative legal argument that basically says, like, the president has all-encompassing power and doesn't deserve to be constrained by three separate branches of government like he should be able to fire anybody he wants which is not 
how it is now. There's worker protections and you can't just come in there and fire a cabinet member who says, no, I'm not going to do that. It's illegal, <laughs> right? So like in his first administration, he would try to do stuff and he would get pushed back to some extent. You know, Muslim bans, some of the more outrageous stuff. People are like, no, we can't do that. And he was pissed. He just wants to fire everybody. So the wonderful, you know, billionaire-backed Heritage Foundation, which is part of the same, you know, same kind of Federalist Society cesspool that was that was funded by all this, you know, dark money that came out of the kind of John Birch Society libertarian movements, you know, co-founded obviously by Frederick Koch, the Koch brothers' father, and then Charles and David Koch at the end of the Carter era, sort of put poor gasoline on those fires and funded it heavily because they were scared of Jimmy Carter and, and his sort of progressive policies and environmental policies that would spell doom for the oil and gas industry. And I've gone into that a lot in the past on this show. I don't need to completely redo it. Happy birthday to Jimmy Carter. He turned 99 the other day. Amazing man. But, uh, my point is that wonderful society, that think tank, you know, of kind of like Brookings Institution gone bad, you know, dweeby guys from Princeton, you know, that, that couldn't get laid and became conservatives, you know, like Samuel Alito, for example. You know, it's all those guys getting paid money, Leonard Leo sitting behind closed doors and, and figuring out ways to, to screw over the government, right? And so the Unitarian, Unitarian theory, pardon me, comes out of that and it's basically like creating a caesar you know having an emperor instead of a president who who has to answer to sort of co-separate but equal branches of government which is what our forefathers had in mind right they didn't want anybody to become king again or emperor they were trying to prevent exactly what donald trump is trying to become right and Though there weren't as many guardrails as we had hoped, there was enough during his first administration that he couldn't get away with that. And they want to make sure if he comes back to power that that doesn't happen again. So they, you know, they drew up this document. It's called Project 2025. I think Salon or somebody did a deep dive on it. You can Google it and find out information or sign up for Knowles Notes on Substack. And uh, basically on day one, they're going to fire 500,000 federal employees and they're going to replace them with these loyalists that they're recruiting now. And there's direct quotes, like they're reaching out all over the country and they're like, leave your trades, put down your tools and come to D.C. and serve Trump. That's literally the quote, right? And the language is important. It's tools, right? They know who they're going for. You know, they want they want a carpenter or whatever who's pro-Trump to be at the Department of Interior or the EPA. <laughs> you know, so it's not even just putting in a Scott Pruitt you know, or these obviously, you know, who was the guy at Interior, you know, uh, the guy who rode the horse to his first day at work, you know, and ripped off the people of Puerto Rico. I hated that guy so much. He's in Congress now. You have to put his name in, in the Ryan Zinke. But anyway, you know, it's not just going to be Scott Pruitt's and Ryan Zinke, right? The, 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 the bureaucracy itself, what's left of it, will be made up of Trump loyalists. Trump supporters, guys with no previous experience in government are going to be in charge of these agencies because their allegiances will be to, to Trump and they'll divert government resources, money to Trump and his properties, and they'll implement 
his policies, you know, which will serve his, you know, cronies and his benefactors. That's, that's what happens in Russia. That's what Putin does. You know, that was the oligarch system. You let him do whatever he wants. You don't push back. And a few of those close to him will become wealthy. And the, the administrative state will be hobbled so that it doesn't work properly and it can't properly protect the people. And then the common folks live in fear and you get sort of street level thugs to be enforcers. And all of a sudden you've conquered a nation, right? That's the battle plan. That's what Trump has drawn up. You know, that's what's going down. And it's laid out in this wonky document and it's not that wonky but i'm trying to break it down for you so that's sort of the theme of of this podcast you know and, and people love to disparage the bureaucracy if you grow up in the dc area like i did i, I lived outside of dc till i was 14 i went back when i was 18 and i as you know i worked on capitol hill as a bike messenger for the congressional budget office and i would deliver to usda every day and department of interior you know, back then there wasn't the, you know, this was late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't the same security. So now most of the time you probably just drop a package at a mail room and somebody signs it for Back then you would have to take it to room, you know, 1401 Cannon Office Building. Like, so I would be walking in all these house office buildings on, on Capitol Hill and Senate, you know, buildings, the heart, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and all the, you know, interior departments, you know, or, or you know, the, the agencies, right? You, EPA, you know, you'd be walking in these places. And I, I have an Im immense respect for the people who've dedicated their lives to sort of working in that bureaucracy because the Republicans have always made it a bad name, right? That's what Reagan came in and did at the same time all these think tanks were being funded you know, it was that same time of like, the government's not good for you. The government's standing between you and your hard-earned money, you know, which is not true, okay? You want a functioning government, you know, and odds are most of that money you made is a result of a government program. But, uh, you know, or some sort of oversight and infrastructure provided by a centralized federal government, okay? Our government and the bureaucracy that it runs, you know, whatever you want to say about it was the envy of a lot of the world, okay? Because it was a finely run machine for a long time, and it still is in many respects. But it is that way because smart people decide, you know what, I'm going to live in Greenbelt or Montgomery County, you know, or wherever, Beltsville, and I'm going to work at the USDA, and I'm going to take what I learned in college, and I'm going to apply it to this one subject, you know, and I'm going to become an expert on this, you know, and do what I'm told for the betterment, you know, of this agency. And that's what people have done, you know, for decades. And those people are punished. You know, they punished them in the Trump administration. They were telling USDA employees from the D.C. area, USDA, Department of Agriculture, they had to transfer, like, out to Kansas or something as punishment or retire early. That was their only choice. Maddow did a big piece on this. This was right before Trump shut down the government the first time, right before... Uh, Christmas, if you remember, I believe that was 2018, going into 19, actually. But, um, you know, he, he did the same thing to sort of punish and, and weed out the sort of loyalists and the experts and stuff, because they didn't want expertise. They want industry to come in and rewrite all the rules. You know, and it, and it breaks my heart knowing these kind of folks, because 
you know, if, as I said, if you grew up outside of D.C., you knew these kind of people, you know, really smart people that just, you know, showed up and went to the office every day for an entire career. And you wipe those people out, you wipe out that expertise. You know, it's the same thing as destroying antiquities in the Smithsonian. You know, that's something our government invested in. You're paying that guy's salary over the course of a, you know, a career because you, you know he's getting great at his job. And, and that information is going to be in that guy. And hopefully he can transfer it to, you know, the next guy who takes over. But that's how you keep, you know, that's how you keep a functioning agency right is, is like each one teach one so to speak you know you have you have a cohesive bunch of people that have dedicated to the, their lives to this stuff and to just do away with that overnight would be disastrous in my mind it's no different than the taliban you know blowing up ancient buddhist statues and stuff just because they can you know it's a smash and grab mentality on our federal government designed to empower one man donald trump right and the billionaires that are backing them because they want another tax break you know that's what the deal is with that so when you see the headline project 2025 that's what it means 50,000 employees fired on day one and and by the way all the other Republican candidates are parroting this talking point Ron DeSantis used the language I'm gonna slit some throats on day one with the administrative state it's the same ire he's directing you know towards the bureaucracy you know which is not a bad word as i just explained so to do something like that would be horrific you know imagine going into your job if you work in an office and you know there's a woman who runs the payroll department and there's you know there's the guy who does receiving and accounts payable and the mail room and everybody was gone and nobody knew how it worked and a bunch of new people just showed up off the bus you know wearing a red hat that said maga and like i'm the new IT guy, you know, I was doing forestry last week, but, you know, let me at that mainframe, bitches, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's the kind of chaos that they want to have happen, you know, because they don't want to function in government. They want to serve Donald Trump. And the fact that, that it's so lucrative to do that, that he has so many billionaire backers and they have so many plans A, B, and C to put him back in power, you know, including rfk jr a complete whack job scumbag human being from every account of everybody i know who's ever met that guy and i've met him too he's bad news just from a vibe you know he's a total douche backstage if you ever meet him i met him at carnegie hill once and or carnegie hall rather carnegie hill was my my, my neighborhood is also full of uh rich assholes but you know rfk jr stands out and he's there to be a spoiler. And the rumor is now that he's got a lot of big backing from these billionaires. And I'd heard that rumor and I was driving. I'd been doing a lot of cycling from Brewster up to Pauling. Uh, it's like up to Dutchess County in New York. And uh, I'm, I'm riding against this old rail trail, right? So it goes through the woods and it was an old railroad, railroad track that's been shut down and it's like peak foliage so it's just been amazing I was doing it every day for a week and the town of Brewster is a town that's been you know it was a working class town when I was growing up in the 80s mostly white working class you know guys with Italian and Irish last names who had contracting companies and some cops and firemen and the kind of people that you know live in that sort of outer ring exurb of, of New York 
and it's you know in in the last few decades it's been populated by these hard-working latin families that have immigrated to, to to the united states to fit in and, and build lives and they brought a lot of great stuff to this community and then it's also you know a lot of the towny types that have stuck around <laughs> you know the white guys so you know it, it's a uh that's a that's a fought after demographic right so driving out of this town there's a big kennedy 2024 placard stuck in the ground you know a big sign and i'm like there's not even biden signs out yet we're still over a year away from the election we're not at the yard sign stage yet but they already got these kennedy signs out there and in sort of you know a, a purple town if you will that's alarming to me and it speaks to kind of backing up that rumor that that kennedy's got big backing you know not to mention the fact he was at this fundraiser that Clapton played at in uh, in Beverly Hills and Brentwood and Stephen Stills, my old boss, went there and got a lot of grief for that, as he should, for being an idiot and taking that picture because <laughs> he shouldn't have done it. But I promise you, Stephen Stills has done a lot of stuff for the Democratic Party. He's not an anti-vaxxer. I used to do an autism benefit with him every year called Light Up the Blues. I did the first one ever and helped him for years do the auctions. Jack Black would host, you know, Tom Petty. We'd have all these great artists playing it. Steven is an old friend of Clapton's who sort of worships Clapton. You know, he's one of those guys who, who still likes Clapton. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure, you know, he's, he played on the Crossroad Festival, which is a, a, a benefit that Eric Clapton has done for years to, to fund his rehab down in Antigua, which is a good cause. I got friends who went down to Crossroads. You know, if you're a rich guy, that's a good place to go to rehab. But, uh, or a rock star or something. But, uh, I'm not dissing it. I know that sounds, I'm in sobriety, okay? I'm not, I'm not dissing that part of it. I've worked with Eric briefly. But, um, my point is, Stephen, you know, was playing Crossroads later in the weekend, and he would have gotten invited to this swanky event at a Brentwood home, and Clapton was going to be there performing. So Stephen's the type like, yeah, sure, I'll go. That sounds fun. It's just down the street. You know, he's been isolated in his house more or less for years, you know, and he goes there and he gets taken a couple of picks. Hey, Stephen, let me get your pick. Get in there with RFK Jr. So there's my old boss with his goofy-ass smile, like, and a pick that's like, no, you have no idea what's going to happen. So, you know, a couple people tried to make the outrage go viral and stuff, but uh, that's who Steven is, in case you're wondering. Uh, and his wife was probably into going to that party, too. You know, he's one of those guys who gets into the glitzy stuff a little bit. But anyway, he's not uh, an enemy of the Democratic Party. RFK Jr. certainly is. Right? And if I had still, if Steven had still been under my counsel, he wouldn't have been at that party <laughs> if I could have stopped him in any way. But uh, RFK Jr. is trying to do some damage to the Democratic Party, you know, and, and certainly Clapton helping him raise two million bucks is no friend either. But Clapton's a very conflicted kind of guy. And uh, my point is that could be very dangerous, but dangerous. But that's why the billionaires are backing all this stuff, right? They're not just going to leave it to one way for Trump to win. They're going to try every way they can, right, with the secretaries of states and all these red states throwing out votes and redistrict, redistricting and all the kind of dirty tricks they could try. They are all going to be employed 
in this coming year. And we're going to be in a geopolitical, you know, quagmire. We got the war in Ukraine. It's been, you know, it'll, it'll be two years this February. You know, we're going to have whatever chaos and conflagration comes out of today's events, which, you know, is hopefully doesn't mean a wider kind of regional conflict, but who knows? Who knows? So you have to keep your eyes on this chaos and anything that's trying to sort of whittle away support to the Democratic Party. And, and to go to my earlier comments, you know, I'm not trying to diss on people in the media, but we have to learn from our, our mistakes. And one of the clear mistakes in 2016 was making it Trump TV all the time, right? Because it was sexy and exciting, right? And it got a lot of eyeballs on your, your news channel and, and on your newspaper. So instead of writing, you know, stories about his past financially, which they easily could have done, they ignored it. And now they're going to act like it's the greatest revelation in the world that his company was worthless and he was overinflating assets. That stuff wasn't a mystery, okay? This is not news, okay? But it feels like news and it can be passion packaged like news and it gets your heart rate going. And getting that heart rate going gets those wallets open, gets those eyeballs in front of ads, you know, advertisers and stuff. And that's what they're selling. They're selling your attention. And I see that same strategy showing up in people that are trying to, you know, build their followings and build out their content, you know, and their subscription base and stuff. So they'll use a Mike Lawler clip, which I saw a lot this past week. Mike Lawler, in case you don't know, he's the congressman from my district now, New York 17. He is in office because, because Sean Patrick Maloney was the Democrat and he got very arrogant and he was a powerful guy in the Democratic Party and was over in Europe raising money with Nancy Pelosi when he should have been back home campaigning. And he also kicked out Mondaire Jones, who had that district and was very popular with his constituents. He pushed him out and tried to run, you know, tried to carve out a bigger district for himself, and he got his ass handed to him by Mike Lawler, who was backed by biz, big business, right? I think Ron Lauder or somebody was paying for all of his signs, and there was just signage all over Westchester, Mike Lawler, right? And he was a Republican operative at the state level up in Albany, right? And was able to snatch a seat away from an incumbent Democratic congressman who won like three or four terms already. So... You know, that was a, that was a, an error, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why the Republicans control the House now is because in New York State, we lost a couple other seats, too, you know, and we were asleep at the wheel as a party. Right. And now those same PACs, Democratic PACs, are retweeting this Mike Lawler guy because he's savvy and he'll show up on CNN and Anderson Cooper will talk to him and he'll say something, you know, outrageous or something against Matt Gates or something he knows the left will use for their own messaging. He's savvy. The message, the, me the left is not being playing savvy as well. Right. So they're just falling for the trap, taking the bait, redoing the clip, you know, reshowing the clip for their own content to build their own clicks and algorithms and impressions and all these things that people use to measure their success now. And they'll make a star out of this guy, Mike Lawler. He's already essentially become a media star in the last week. His name pops up in The New York Times all the time. His name is popping up you know, in this feud with AOC and she keeps taking the bait and retweeting him and calling him out. Mistake. Don't give him the oxygen. 
because you'll never unseat that guy now. He's going to win his next term, okay? He's not going to get beat by Mondaire Jones because I know his constituents, you know? And it was a miracle we had a Democrat in that seat to begin with because the tides are changing up here and they're turning red. You know, New York State is not the same New York State I grew up in. That conservative attitude is poisoning the minds of folks up here. You know, Elise Stefanik is a great example of that. Little rich kid from Albany. There's a lot of money outside of Albany. It's the state capital. She went to prep school. She went to Harvard, drove a BMW, went to work on the hill for somebody, you know, ran for a seat as an unknown, won, and, you know, it was perfect timing got in there and started kissing Trump's ass and saying outrageous things and built her brand. You know, Matt Costelli, an ex-CIA guy, tried to run against her last election and he lost. He didn't win because she was entrenched. It's very hard to unseat somebody once they get into a position of power. And Democrats would do well to remember that, you know, and don't give them a pocket full of the coin of the realm, which is attention these days. It's a high profile presence on media. There's no such thing as bad news, you know? Lauren Boebert doesn't care that she went viral for giving her, you know, boo a hand job in the, you know, in the theater or whatever, you know what I mean? She doesn't care, she's not gonna suffer because of that. It's gonna raise her game. And she's gonna think, oh, the Democrats, you know, the Democrats are attacking me. Like, there's no such thing as bad news because, you know, the right is not ingesting the, the facts. They're ingesting the feelings, right? Because the feelings and the fear are what they're selling on the right. So when I see those same sort of sales policies, if you will, being employed on the left, it scares me, you know? And that's not to say there shouldn't be, like, the dark brand and accounts and the pushback stuff and... Pardon me, I had another White House meeting like I had last year. I wasn't down there this time. I was talking on Zoom with some people who work there. And, you know, they're they're pretty savvy with their messaging. But, you know, they're up against the mainstream media who doesn't want to give him any credit ever. You saw the jobs numbers that came out yesterday. Twice what, what had been hoped for, like 325,000 new jobs. I think they were hoping for 150,000 or something. That's miraculous, you know? Inflation's going down, employment's going up. Good stuff, considering we were on the brink of disaster, you know, two and a half, three years ago. We had a shutdown economy. Dude's kicking ass on numbers. You wouldn't read about that in the newspaper, right? And even that good news, if you, if you saw, New York Times was trying to couch it in defeat, you know? Job numbers are up. Why this is bad news for the Fed, <laughs> you know? Like, what, you know? Yeah, but that's what we're up against, you know, so you have to be aware of that, you know, because the media is addicted to the negative stuff, too. They, they want to put a negative spin on it. People aren't going to, you know, they're, they're less likely to pick up the paper if it's like, oh, everything's going roses and nothing is going roses. There's plenty of bad news to report on. The irony is they ignore a lot of the really bad stuff that would be illuminating to, 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 to humanize the effects of climate change alone and to prepare people for what is ahead in terms of, you know, climate migration. You think the immigrant problem is bad now in terms of migrants trying to get across the border? Wait until the entire countries are uninhabitable, you know? Wait till there's no water in Arizona or Texas and see where all those people end up, you know? It's coming, you know? Crops are failing 
in Europe, you know, there's practically no olive oil, you know. No olive oil is a major problem, <laughs> you know, for somebody like me who uses it on everything, you know. But, uh, you know, I'm making light. There's nothing funny about that. Start writing about that stuff. And it, it's not that they aren't, and the climate scientists are pulling their hair out because the numbers that came out for September, they came out this week, and they were beyond what anybody thought. And if you look at these charts, you know, it gets really bad in the last 10 or 15 years. The last two years, it gets even worse than that. It's just like this year has just been a straight line all the way up. All of the warning signs are going off. Alarm bells are ringing everywhere, right? That's stuff to cover. You know, you could sum up the whole Trump trial at the top of every news hour for 10 minutes. You could do 10 minutes at the top of the show and then move on with more in-depth reporting that'll educate your viewership and build the empathy and humanity to empower people to know that they're not powerless, to know that they can do something about this, right? The right has some, some of that strategy in their aggression, right? They're sort of recruiting terrorists the same way Hamas recruited all these guys that ran across the border today in Israel and started kidnapping innocent women and shooting children, you know, and non-combatants and holding people hostage in their homes or killing them, you know? They were recruited by, you know, an organization did not, that did not have their best interests, but they wanted them to become a soldier and fight for a cause of economic oppression and religious superiority. Does that sound familiar? You know, does that sound like the Christo-fascism? Put down your tools and come join the movement, you know, and serve President Trump in D.C.? Come to... The Capitol on January 6th, it's going to be wild. That was a mob. Those were terrorists. They were trying to disrupt and attack a government because they'd been manipulated by a billionaire who's never paid taxes, who's never worked an honest day in his life, you know, who was a cheat and a scammer with every business partner he ever had, every wife he ever had he cheated on. You know, he abused prostitutes that he paid for. You know, sex workers, prostitutes, derogatory, I don't mean it that way. You know, I have a friend, as I told you, you know, who ended up in Epstein's house with him and said, no, you wouldn't believe what those men did to women. You know, he, he would pay money to abuse people. He's a sadistic demon who, if he grew up poor in the Bronx, he would have been dead or in jail by the time he was 21 because somebody else's dad or brother would have kicked his ass for the stuff he was doing to women early on. You know, or he would have popped his little, you know, privileged mouth off and somebody would have put him in his place. But he was a rich kid, right? So daddy kept bailing him out because daddy needed him. You know, daddy's two other sons were drunks. <laughs> so he knew nothing was going to happen there. You know, Trump was at least, you know, was into speed instead of cocaine. <laughs> he, he didn't like to drink because he was scared of that stuff, you know. By the way, he would still drink from time to time. That I'm a teetotaler is a myth that came from Trump that's always repeated. He's not a boozer, but when he, he would get bottle service back in the day when he'd go to clubs and drink a you know, light beer or something. But he's a speed freak. You know, he likes cocaine. He likes something that makes him feel like he's in control. You know, because he saw what alcohol did to his brother, both of his brothers, you know. And, and Robert, by the way, died while he was in office. Trump hadn't talked to him in like 15 years. He was the town drunk up in Millbrook, which is a horse town up near me in the Hudson Valley. Trump had no 
like contact with this dude. You would never see him at The Apprentice or Celebrity Apprentice, none of that stuff. And then when he was dying of alcoholism, essentially, at Mount Sinai, and I think they might have moved him to New York Hospital, Trump went to visit, you know, in his, you know, when the guy's on his deathbed. It's like, and then brought his body, his casket, down to the White House for a photo op. Just the most, you know, disgusting behavior. And I'm not dissing on him for being, I'm a recovering alcoholic. My anniversary was just this past week again. You know, one day at a time, I put years together, and, and I've been very involved since I went to NIH 18 years ago. You know, that's when my recovery journey began. NIH, by the way, which would have been shut down last week had the, the Republicans and Trump gotten their, their way to shut down the government, and it could be shut down again in less than six weeks, right? I think the extension was 45 days or something. 45 days goes fast in the fall. <laughs> it goes fast any time, but especially this time of year. So, you know, that could be shut down again. That's NIH, National Institutes of Health. That's where they do all the medical research. That's where they advise all the other hospitals and stuff. You know, it's where Dr. Fauci was in charge. It's where they broke the genetic code. It's where they developed AC, AZT. AZT, the, you know, the antiviral, the AIDS drug. So, you know, they do, these guys are miracle workers. And, and when I was there, I was at NIAA, which is the National Institute of Alcoholism and Abuse. And I was in a 28-day program where they were going to, you know, I was part of this experimental thing where I was going to take a, a drug that might help with, with withdrawal from alcoholism, but it could have been a, been a placebo. Nobody was going to know. It's called a double-blind protocol. And while I was there, I got to go to AA meetings and everything. So I learned about my disease, and then I was powerless, and as soon as I took up the first drink, took the first drink, I didn't have a chance. You know, and it was sort of my thinking, my programming, if you will. It's like you have a bug in your computer operating system, you know, and if you go in there and redo that programming, the thing will work right, you know, but if not, you, you know, you're, you're heading for disaster. So in those terms, I started going to meetings while I was in, in this rehab and learning about my disease and learning about the steps and living one day at a time, and it was like wind under my wings, you know, and it's not easy, but, but you know, it's doable for anybody. There is a solution, as they say. So I got hip to that by going to this, you know, place of, of great scientific research and stuff. They basically said, hey, man, this is the only thing we've ever seen that works <laughs> is this AA stuff. So 12 step stuff, just jump right in, brother. And I did. And, and my life's been, you know, hasn't been the same since in a very positive way. And luckily, you don't have to go to NIH, a fancy place to learn that. You can go into a church basement or a community hall in whatever town you're living in right now, and I guarantee you there'll be people like me sitting around that'll stick out their hand and welcome you. And you just sit down and listen, man. And when you're ready to start sharing, start sharing. And if you relate to what somebody's saying, go up to them and ask them for their phone number and uh, use it and call them and start to be honest with another human being about what you're feeling and what you're going through. And you're going to be feeling better before you know it. Crazy as it sounds. Okay? So when I went to NIH, that's what I came away from. But while I was there, you know, I saw that, you know, I've talked about this before on the show. You know, I was there at Christmas time and I saw the pediatric cancer ward, you know, this oncology ward where these kids were given their, their lives to science, essentially. You know, when I was there over the Christmas holiday, I saw their families, you know, pushing them 
through the hallways and stuff. You know, there was a common area, and you'd see a family walking their kid, and the you know the kid's got a cap on their head because they've lost their hair, and you know they're in you know God knows what kind of you know treatment they're under. And uh, you know, one of the counselors when I was there, you know, when I was about to leave, said to me, you know, he goes, look out the window, you know, look at that pediatric cancer ward. He goes, what do you think those families would say? If I were to walk into their room right now and say their child with a fatal disease could walk out of here today with that disease in full remission if they were to go to a meeting, if they were to work 12 steps, if they were to get a sponsor and call them, you think they'd trade places with you? Because let me tell you something, you both have a fatal disease. You know, that's the only reason Congress gives us money. It has to be fatal. That's all we study here. But your disease you can put into a temporary reprieve by going to a meeting every day, by not picking up a drink, you know, by being honest with another human being, with taking an honest inventory of yourself and your behavior and changing it, you know, having the balls to have a personality change. You know, when this dude put it to me like that, I got it, you know. And I also got the bravery in the sense of hopelessness, you know, in the face of horror that these kids and other, you know, and adult patients were going through at this place. So to think that that facility wouldn't be allowed to take on new patients in a shutdown, because that's what happens. They lose their funding, funding to start new protocols, right? It doesn't mean all the patients there get kicked out right away, but it means they don't bring in any new patients while the government is shut down. They don't start new experiments, new treatments, and everything they do there is experimental. Like all the stuff you're already taking out there in the world for medicine has already gone through the National Institutes of Health. And these guys were epaulets and stuff. They're part of the National Health Service. It's like they're in the Navy or something. Anyway, to think of that work, you know, that noble work they're doing, be, being hampered for a second because of a shutdown to, you know, to appease some mob boss at his private golf club in New Jersey disgusts me. And that's what we're facing again in six weeks. And by the way, when Trump went to Walter Reed, that's on the same campus. It's right across the street as NIH. And if you remember, he went there. He was apparently much sicker than they let on, right? They gave him the monocloidal, you know, experimental stuff at that point, right? <laughs> Saved his life. And while he was there, he would have his supporters go outside on the street, if you remember, and they would, like, ring bells all night long and horns and beep horns and, like, Yay, Donald Trump! Yay, MAGA! Right? All night long. That was within earshot of these cancer patients. These very sick children trying to get better had to listen to MAGA all night so Trump's ego could be fed. You know, that's just the physical reality of that time he had. And it drove me nuts when we were living through it because I knew exactly where he was and I heard how noisy it was on TV and I couldn't imagine, you know what it did to the patients. And knowing that that human being that was getting special treatment was making life worse, you know, for these other less fortunate souls across the street for no other reason than to feed his ego was maddening. And then to know that when he left, he wanted to wear a Superman t-shirt and rip off his shirt when he walked out of the door to show how tough he was. They talked him out of that. The compromise was the helicopter ride that Mark Burnett consulted on. Because if you remember, he got in the, you know, Marine One or whatever the helicopter's called. 
and took a long circular approach down the Potomac at sunset, but they had follow helicopters with news cameras in it to, to, to videotape it. Burnett was always obsessed with helicopters. That's like his trademark because he was a German, I mean, he was an English like special forces guy at the beginning of his career. So he always puts helicopters in his shots. If you remember The Apprentice, there was always a helicopter in the B-roll. I've told you that story, too, about what Trump said in the helicopter. I'll tell you another time. My buddy was the audio guy in there, and he looked down at Queens, and he goes, look down there. I don't want to use the language. He said, look at all those spicks, I'll use it, Muslims and N-words. That's what he said. And then he looked back at my friend who's Puerto Rican from New York and just smiled. My buddy's the audio guy sitting in the back, you know. That's who Trump is. He's like 1950s racist, right? Because he grew up like West Side Story era, 50s and 60s, where, you know, Puerto Ricans in his mind were the big threat, you know? And he used the N-word out in the open on Celebrity Apprentice. You know, you've heard me talk about that before. MS, you know, NBC knew that at the time. That didn't come out in the campaign. Even though I told Hillary's, you know, I told Hillary's people about it. But anyway, uh, so he got that, you know, helicopter ride through D.C. He essentially got to turn it into a campaign commercial, him leaving, luckier than the million Americans who didn't get to leave their hospital bed when they got COVID, right? Million plus since then, 400,000 or whatever on his watch at that point, perished Americans. This guy cuts a campaign commercial out of it. The Marine One lands, you know, on the ellipse or behind the White House or whatever, you all remember he got out, wheezed his fat ass up the stairs, and then ripped his mask off like he was a tough guy. And that was pretty much the end of people fighting back against COVID, right? Because that kind of kicked off the anti-mask, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it was symbolic. And he knew that because he was heading into the campaign and not wearing a mask was going to be, you know, part of the right wing BS that they fed people. And look where we are now. Like, we're in the midst of another surge and nobody even talks about it. You go out in public, barely anybody wears a mask anymore. You can thank Donald Trump for that, you know? Because wearing a mask was like, if I'm protecting a kid or an elderly person, somebody I've never met, sign me up. Give me two of them, you know? But anyway, so that's where we are with all that. It's all maddening stuff, you know? It's all crazy, you know? And it's always been that way, and, in many ways, but we've never had as much chaos, as much kind of, obviously we've never been in this place before with, with, with both the environmental catastrophe and the outright anti-Semitism and fascism that, that is online. You know, if you're, if you're using Twitter, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're on Twitter because you want to see my tweets, please don't. Like, don't. You know, consider threads, consider not using it. You know, don't let me allow you to engage with that thing anymore because elon musk is is like trump part two you know he's going to be something that we're going to have to contend with in a big way for many years to come but we got to sort of bury trump first electorally <laughs> you know but uh so anyway you know I'll get into more of that stuff next time. I don't, I don't want to overburden you. But, uh, you know, we've always been in these times. We've always had things to look forward to. And we've always had the kind of sort of artistic, spiritual leadership we needed in a moment. And it's still out there. You know, we don't have Max Roach or somebody today. You know, we don't have Dr. King 
we don't have we don't have a a movement in the same way right because all of the movements are individual people trying to build their brand it's not just a ton of people marching and we're stronger when we're together and that's not to say there weren't climate protests what i'm trying to specifically talk about is is the online thing and how that becomes a conduit to power even if in just a media sense and that can be a trap that can be dangerous right because if you think you're completely fighting back by staying on twitter and retweeting people elon could shut that off in a second he could turn off twitter two months before the election you know next september or october and there, there would be chaos and all the democrats would be like everything was on twitter i didn't even set up a threads account you know and that's dangerous you know we need the white house you need all those political agencies that are still using Twitter, and I understand why, but you need them to, to start putting their eggs in another basket because you can't trust your eggs to that dude because there's a hole in the basket, you know? And, and that's not even to get into the moral stuff about why would you want to help, you know, an anti-Semitic, fascist, Nazi-loving guy, you know? Why would you want to help his product? There was already disinformation today. You know, they had the talking points ready to go that the $6 billion that Biden, you know, gave back to Iran was used in this attack. It wasn't. That money hasn't been touched yet. It's sitting in a bank account in Gutter, I believe. It's, you know, it has international monitors. They haven't spent any of it yet. Half the money goes to Iraq anyway to, like, rebuild some stuff there. And, you know, it's that's not what is happening but that's what trump said and that's what rick scott said and all these other vampires in the gop are going to use a talking point it's also very convenient that they had that talking point ready to go it's also convenient that netanyahu had a kind of video shot that sort of looked a little campaign style when he's like we're at war you know he didn't look like a scared haggard like caught by surprise guy he looked like he he knew this moment was coming that that will be revealed and smarter people than me can figure out why there's an intelligence failure. But I don't trust Netanyahu. I certainly don't trust Trump. You know, Netanyahu used to sleep in Jared Kushner's bed and when he visited the Kushners back in Jersey. So they all go way back. And I'm not saying that they knew this was coming, but, you know, Israel has the greatest intelligence agencies outside the United States, you know, and, and all of them sort of failed, which is just not possible. So there will be accounting you know and you know, as i said people will figure this out but the point is providing disinformation especially if you're an elected representative like a united states senator in a time like this that that's criminal that's aiding the terrorists you know this is when you all come together as americans on 9 11 you didn't have that many people you know, saying disparate things. You had Donald Trump, who was lying, who wasn't even in New York. He was at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> he was down there with another couple, and that guy since died. So you never got the true story. But like, Barons or Cranes did a whole piece on it, you know? And he flew back afterwards, but he wasn't even in New York City that day. I freaking guarantee you. But um, he used it for his own gain, and that's how his initial response this time was, how can this help my campaign? This is Biden's fault. That's not what you say. That's not what you say as an ex-president, right? George W. Bush isn't saying that stuff. You know, you got to stand united in the face of this terror. You don't think of what can I get out of this, right? 
But that's what Trump does, and that's what the Republican Party does. Rick Scott, a guy who stole billions from Medicaid, you know, and got a huge, you know, settlement when he left and then became a governor and then a senator who's never given anything in his life, as many of these men haven't, you know. So, and look up that thing about Trump not being in New York. It's completely true. He didn't show up until like the 13th or something. It was another couple and the other guy. The other guy owned like page six. He was part of, he owned part of like the post operations. And uh, he and his wife were down there with Melania for like the weekend and stuff. And he, he swore by it. This was way before Trump was president. This was like, this came out like 2003 or four or something. And the guy since died. All these people die that Trump you know, that like Trump's doctor that gave him the Adderall, Harold Bornstein, died mysteriously right after January 6th. They found him dead in his home in Scarsdale. His family didn't say why. They quietly sent in an obit to the New York Times. The, you know, the doctor with the crazy hair that said Trump is the most, you know, greatest physical specimen. <laughs> that Trump wrote his medical report when he was running in 2016. And that Trump, his first action as president was sending... Keith Schiller and Matthew Calamari and the lawyer, I forget the, the Trump org lawyer who went in, they went into this doctor's office, pushed him up against a wall and took all of Trump's medical records. Okay. They didn't do that because Captain Valtrex had high cholesterol. I promise you, you know, and that guy ending up dead in his house was mysterious as, as well. And I knew that guy's office. He was a doctor feel good. You know, he would provide pills to the ladies on Park Avenue and, you know, Xanax heads on the Upper East Side. There's a lot of drug abuse in wealthy white communities, and it's legal, right? Because it's prescription. And if you're a rich, rich person and you got a doctor, they'll write you a script. At least they did back in the day. But um, so that's who that guy was. But anyway, Trump always has these convenient deaths around him. You know, things always sort of break in his way, and uh, that's something we have to be aware of, right? So. Don't engage with the disinformation. Don't make it easier for them to do their jobs. You know, don't make stars out of the bad guys. I know it's scintillating. I know it's entertaining, but we have to be very disciplined in our approach because we're in a very tumultuous, tenuous time, okay? So thank you, guys. I love you. Thanks for listening. I'm sorry I haven't seen you in a while. I'll be back regularly. I was in Nantucket for a little bit, and you know, the Substack, that, that's what I work pretty hard on, th those articles. I wrote one about Jimmy Buffett, who I got to know a page a day. Jimmy Buffett told me to, you know, I, I was struggling as a writer. He said, a page a day, man. That's what Herman Woke told me, a page a day. Then at the end of 30 days, you got something. And he was right. And the last time I saw Jimmy was in Paris backstage at the Olympic. No, it wasn't the last time I saw him at Lincoln Center. But uh, even when I saw him at Lincoln Center, a page a day. He would see me, he would just say a page a day. <laughs> what a great guy. Anyway, all right, well, I'll leave it there, okay? I love you guys. Check out the Noel Kassler, Noel's Notes on Substack. You can find me on threads. You can listen to the podcast. And that's about it. I, I need to see you guys in person. I need to do some live shows again because, you know, I talk to this computer screen and it goes out there and it's a number. You know, and there's like 10,000 people that, that watch or listen to this every time I do it, and I don't see any of them. You know, I don't get to talk to you. I'm looking at my own ugly face here in, in the computer screen. <laughs> so uh, I got to get back out there and see you guys. I got some other writing projects I've been doing, too. Maybe I'll try to do some excerpts on Substack, you know, the book kind of stuff you guys are asking for. 
Been doing some artwork, been doing a lot of music. Happy birthday to Tom York. Today's Tom York's birthday. My, uh, my best friend, who I've never met, he did wave at me in Queens this year at their concert, and uh, that was a happy moment. <laughs> I was like, he just waved at me. Hi, Tom. So happy birthday, Tom York. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. This is the Noel Kassler Podcast, episode 104. I will be back soon, I promise. Peace and take care of yourselves.